Hello. Good morning. My name is Day. Um, I'm the pastoral resident here at Cornerstone. I am stepping in for our senior pastor, who is Walt Nielsen, who is away on vacation. Um, if you try to contact him this week, you probably could not reach him, probably, because he's on vacation. But he assured me and he promised me that he'll listen to every sermon. So if you would like to send him a message, just let me know, and I'll put it into my sermon somehow. Um, <laughs> as a congregation, we are starting a new series. We just finished a series on the fruit of the Spirit, and now we're starting a new series on uh, the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And I've decided to call this series, it's a little cheesy, but I've decided to call this series, Christ's Letter to His Bride, P.S., I Love You. And you may be wondering, why are we doing this series? Why, why now? Why this book? Well, there are several reasons, but let me give you three. The first one would be that Walt comes back in seven weeks. So it kind of works out that seven churches, seven weeks, and Walt will be back in seven, in seven weeks, so we'll be done by the end of the series. So by God's providence, it works out perfectly. It will be disobedience to not do, to do otherwise. Um, <laughs> But on a more serious note, uh, we're doing this series because if you're like me, maybe there is no other book in the Bible that terrifies you when it comes to teaching and reading and reading it than the book of Revelation. Because when it comes to Revelation, is as for some people, it's Revelation is a it's a book about God's wrath and plan to end mankind and all that we hold dear. And that may be true. There is some truth to that. But what we often miss with this beautiful book is that it's the postscript, is that Revelation is about God's love. It's about God's wrath, yes, but it's about God's love. In fact, it wasn't until I went to seminary that I was introduced and exposed to the beauty and tremendous encouragement that this book gives the readers. One of my professors put it like this, and I quote, um, God knew that some of his servants would hesitate over this book. So he gives extra encouragement to our reading by pronouncing an explicit blessing. This blessing is found in chapter 1. And I think he was putting it very nicely when he said hesitate over this book. Because perhaps you're here and you've never read the book of Revelation in your life because you don't want to read about an angry God who plans to bring the end of the world. That's fair. If that's you and you're here, welcome. (laughs) You will hear a little bit about that, but welcome. But I do pray that God will meet you through these series and you'll come to know the postscript of the letter, which is, P.S., I love you. Maybe for others, you've grown up in the church for many years. You've been going to church for a lot for many years. And for a long time, you've avoided this book because... It's confusing, or it just brings headaches, and it's unnecessary fights with maybe other people who know a little bit about the book, and you're afraid to engage in conflict, and you're afraid to be confused, and you're afraid of not understanding this beautiful book. To you, I would say, brothers and sisters, this is a letter from Jesus Christ. This is Jesus addressing us, and I pray that through this series, you'll come to know his love which casts out all fear 
and you'll come to know his spirit, which makes things clear. And thirdly, the third reason we're going through this book is because it's a letter to all the churches back then, today, and tomorrow. There are seven churches addressed in chapters 2 and 3, but it really is one letter. It wasn't that there were seven different letters sent to seven different churches, but it was actually one letter containing the whole message to all the seven churches. And in verse 7, God makes it clear that this message was not just for the church in Ephesus. But if you look at verse 7 with me, it says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches today, yesterday, and tomorrow. So Cornerstone Church, let let us hear what Christ has to say to us today and what he had to say to the church in Ephesus. So please turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be reading from verse 1 to 7. And if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up here on the screen. Revelation chapter 2. It says... To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Would you pray with me for God's blessing on his word? Father, we all have ears here, but sometimes we can't hear. Would you give us your spirit to hear? Father, we all have hearts here, but sometimes they're not beating. Would you enable our hearts to beat for you? Father, we all have eyes, and yet sometimes we miss Christ. Would your spirit point us to him? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We can draw the main point of our passage to be this. Jesus' love is gripping. And when it grips us, it leads us to remember, repent, and redo labors of love. So Jesus' love is gripping, and when it grips us, it leads us to remember, repent, and redo labors of first love. I would like to explore with you three points today this morning. Number one, what is first love? What is this passage talking about? Secondly, why do we lose first love? And thirdly, how do we regain it? So what is first love? Why do we lose it? And how do we regain it? So what is first love? First love is a person. In the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the beginning of this letter, we read that a person is addressing the church in Ephesus, and it is the same person 
who is commending, rebuking, and exhorting the church. And this person is no other than Jesus Christ himself, the head of the church. But there's a little bit more going on here because Jesus is not coming to the church and talking to the church as the manager or he's not coming to the church and and speaking to the church as a boss, but he's speaking as a lover. He's coming to the church as her groom. In verse 2, the first thing he says to her is that he knows. He knows her works, and he knows how much toil and patient endurance the church went for his name's sake. Now, this makes a little more sense if we know a little bit about the city of Ephesus, which the church was in. The city, the Ephesian church was located in Ephesus, and this was a city that was considered to be at the time the gateway city to the Roman Empire. It was famous for its large harbors. It had a thriving marketplace. And you could tell the city was rich because they had one, they had one of the seven wonders of the world at the time, the Temple of Artemis. It was so big that people would marvel at the sheer size of this building. They've never seen anything like it before. Another interesting piece about, of information about the city was that it was a promiscuous city. See, Artemis was known to be the goddess of fertility and success. And how do you worship the goddess of fertility and success? Well, first, success, you, you offer all your success, your money, whatever profit you made. And how do you worship the god of fertility? Well, you engage in sexual relations with the priests and priestesses who were on standby at the temple. The city of Ephesus was so full of greed, materialism, and promiscuity that the one ancient philosopher writing about the city, he notes that this city was so promiscuous that no one, no one could live in the city without weeping at its immorality. Ephesus was kind of like Sin City. It was Sin City. Whatever happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus. Because nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to hear about it. It was that promiscuous. So when Jesus comes to this church and commends the church of Ephesus for her labor, her patient endurance, and her efforts for the gospel, he's acknowledging her perseverance in the midst of a war zone. What Jesus is specifically referring to here is that the Ephesian church was a church that used her gifts her resources selflessly and efficiently to plant churches all across Asia Minor and send missionaries. But also, another commendation of the church was that she receives, uh, in the midst of so much immorality, she, she holds steadfast to the gospel. The church maintained her convictions of the truth, and she did not waver. I mean, this was a church that knew her Bible. This was a church that her congregants knew theology. And rightly so, because the founding pastor of the Ephesian church was none other than the Apostle Paul himself. After Paul left for his um, missionary work to Jerusalem, he, he bestowed upon Timothy to lead the church down in the right doctrine. So Timothy, his Paul's protege, took over the church. After Timothy... For a few number of years, the church was under the leadership of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, sorry, the Apostle John, the Apostle of Love. I mean, this was a church with a powerhouse staff. 
Cornerstone, don't get me wrong, we have a championship contending staff, but when you have two members of your staff that wrote the Bible, um, there's no contest there. We're not there yet. Um, Paul's last words for this church, to the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20, was this. He charges the church to watch out for false teachers and to be alert in their doctrine. Protect the doctrine, which Jesus commends them for doing. In verse 6, we, know, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans, but what we do know about them is that they were a group of people probably within the church who taught that it was okay for Christians to engage in idol worship, um, sexual promiscuity, and have a relaxed theology. So the Ephesian church was literally planted in a social war zone with constant attacks of compromise and probably insults of being narrow-minded. You know what this means? It means this. This is very encouraging for us. And you may say, how so? Here's why. Because Jesus knows the scars of his church. Jesus knows the scars of his church. See, and no effort by the church to remain steadfast in the truth of the gospel goes unnoticed by Jesus. See, Jesus knows his bride. He knows the battles of his bride. He knows the prayer requests. He knows her social struggles to compromise and his church and the, and the things that his church fights against week in and week out. For us, Cornerstone, Jesus knows B3N. Jesus knows the mission trips that we send, that we go to every summer. Jesus knows every, the, every ministry team in this church laboring for his name. Jesus knows the personal perseverance of faith of every individual here. He knows. So if you've ever wondered, does, it, does my role even matter? This passage tells us he does. It does. Jesus knows. Jesus knows when you've been crying in the corner because you feel like you're a failure in ministry. Jesus knows when you're insecure whether your sermon will be good or not. He knows. Jesus knows. But in verse 4, but in verse 4, Jesus has this one thing against them. That the Ephesian church lost the love they had at first. The Ephesian church lost the love they had at first. Now, what does that mean? It means that they lost the concept of a person. It means that at, point, at some point in their church service, their service and work became fueled by religion and not a relationship with Jesus. We mentioned that doctrine and theology was very important to the church in Ephesus, and I would argue that doctrine and theology is very important for us here at Cornerstone. So much so that people in Ephesus went from loving God to loving knowledge about God. See, church, when we lose our first love for Jesus, we see Jesus as a subject to master and not as a savior to master us. The people in Ephesus were what some people would today describe as the frozen chosen. It means that losing sight of Christ as a person, it makes us cold in love towards other people disregarding their feelings and disregarding anything that there are people as long as we're right in doctrine. Frozen chosen also means that in our worship becomes heartless. 
We go through the motions of worship without passion, and we're content with that. See, nothing is more deadly for the church. We can name many enemies of the church, but nothing is more deadly, nothing is deadlier for the church than the loss of love. In Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, which is known to be the love chapter, he makes this astounding claim that he could sell all he has for the poor. He could speak in tongues of angels and have wisdom from above. He could even give his own body to be burned for the sake of the church and the gospel, and yet, without love, he's nothing. And you could argue the same. A church that does amazing events for the community, sends missionaries all over the world, and yet without love, it's nothing. A Christian who spends hours and hours in prayer comes to every church event, and yet without love, you're nothing. Jesus is speaking to his church then and asking the very same question, Ephesus, my bride, where is your passion? Where is your heart? Since when have we become roommates instead of lovers? Where is that excitement you had when you came to Sunday mornings to worship and now it's something you do because you've been doing it for such a long time? Where is that joy you had when you opened scriptures and you were so eager for the Spirit to speak to you and now you just read scripture because you want to post it on Instagram or you just want to check it off your list or you just want to learn a little bit more about God? Where is that passion? What happened to your cheerful giving heart when you gave tithes and now you're mindlessly writing checks and putting it on, the, on whatever is being passed around? Or on the other side, If you don't tithe, where is that generous, giving, surrendering heart that you had at first? Maybe for some of you here, there were, when you first became a Christian and the church needed volunteers to serve in anything, you would jump at the opportunity because you said, anything for Jesus. My time for Jesus. But now... You may be serving out of necessity and convenience. Where is that heart? Church, Cornerstone, have we also lost our first love? Maybe you're sitting here thinking, ah, first love doesn't really last. It's not feasible. It's not, uh, and if you've been married for a long time, you would know, young man. Well, um, you would say, it's normal for passion to decrease over time because you can't be excited about everything all the time. That's not how it works. It doesn't mean that we don't love them. It just means that our heart is not in it all the time. Passion is unrealistic to maintain. American writer Raymond Chandler once said this, the first kiss is magic. The second is intimate. The third is routine. Is this how our hearts are at the moment? Maybe you're saying, Jesus can't have my heart all the time. That's unrealistic. Well, in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 10, he tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind. The only thing that's kind of missing here is when. When should we love the Lord this way? And Jesus is implying here, always. It's not a seasonal thing. It's not when you feel spiritually high. It's not a, it's not a thing that you go through in, in the beginning of your Christianity and then you lose it. It's always. 
Love the Lord your God always with such passion. I mean, how many of you would be okay if you came home one day and, um, and, then your, and then your spouse said to you, Honey, I had a breakthrough moment today. I realized that I can't love you all the time, and I don't. And you can't have my heart all the time. You actually don't. You lost my heart a couple years ago. But good news, because I'm going to still live in the house. I'll still pay for the mortgage. I'll still help take care of the kids. And I'll go to every major event with you. How about that? How many of you will be okay with that? This past week, I was reading countless articles on how to rekindle passion in marriages. And it has a lot of benefits for the sermon and for myself. But, and something that, I, that all of them had in common was that on the advice to block out at least a whole day, at least a day, some, some love experts suggested a week or a month, but at least a whole day to spend with the person to communicate and do something you both enjoy. And I think for the most part, people would agree. Yeah, of course, that makes sense. It's a good advice. But why is it that in my life and maybe in yours, if someone were to suggest to spend the whole day with Jesus, that seems like an extreme. Maybe a waste of time. You may be saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus can have five minutes, maybe top an hour, but I have stuff to do. Why is it so weird, or maybe a little res- there's a little resistance from us to say, Jesus can't have 24 hours? That's unrealistic. You can't expect me to block out my whole day, work, other people. I can't spend a whole day with Jesus. Why not? See, when was the last time that if you needed to reconnect with your spouse, you would make that an imperative? When was the last time if you needed to catch up with a friend, you would make that a must-do? At least a whole day. Or maybe a family member, if you've been out of touch with a family member, you gladly and, of course, logically, you would spend a whole day with that person to rekindle passion, to, re- to have a heart-to-heart. But when it comes to Jesus, an hour is hard enough. Why? Friends, could it be because you've made the person of Jesus into a concept and not a person? Like the Ephesians... Perhaps you have lost your first love and made Jesus into a subject to be mastered and not a savior to be mastered by. Have we forgotten that our spouses and our friends and our family are just shadows pointing us to a greater spouse, to a greater relationship that demands uh, more intense attention than anybody or anything else? Church, do you see Jesus as the boss of the church where your only concern about him is that he only cares about your performance, forgetting that he's the groom of the church who also cares about your heart. Jesus doesn't want your performance. He cares about, he wants your heart. So first love, what is it? First love, it's a person. First love is spousal love. It's intimate love. It's wholehearted love. I dare say that it's even Bedroom love, it's the love that you only talk about when the kids are asleep. It's love that is spoken of in the book of Song of Songs. It's passionate, intimate love. And I think if we're honest, 
myself included, for most of us, we have lost this love and we are content with going through the motions because we have lost the concept of Jesus Christ as a person. Which leads us to the second point. Why do we lose this love? Why do we lose this first love? Verse 4 gives us an answer. It says this, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Many psychologists today, they try to answer this question of why do people lose passion over time within their marriages? And there's a bunch of, re- there's a bunch of research that suggests this and that. Um, there's this one interesting one by, uh, on psychology today by Dr. Sonia Limbomirsky, that she, and she argues that human beings, when it comes to romantic relationships, we are wired to crave variety. We are wired to crave variety once we feel like we know there's everything to know about a romantic person. And there's some truth to that when it comes to our relationship with God. We think we know everything about God. We've studied Him for years, and now we want something else. Something more interesting is that there's another psychologist who builds upon this work, um, and she mentions this concept of a fantasy bond. A fantasy bond. And a fantasy bond is a way that some people choose to relate to another person and it serves as a substitute for a truly invested relationship. In other words, it's the illusion of connection and intimacy while preserving emotional distance. So, for example, if someone is afraid of commitment, they will create a fantasy bond. They will enjoy, and if they enjoy their freedom, then they'll date multiple partners throughout their life, and they'll create shallow bonds that won't require any death or commitment. If you, if you just merge these two ideas together, you get what the Bible calls idolatry. Adultery. Our hearts are constantly bored of God, and we're looking for new partners apart from God, and they're always keeping God at a distance, at a shallow distance. See, variety says, I know everything there is to know about God, it's enough, I want something else. While fantasy bond says, God can have my brain and sometimes my hands and my feet, but not my heart. You keep God at a shallow distance. All to say, When we lose our first love for Jesus, it's because we compromise our love for Christ as top and sole priority and choose other things that come along. Isn't it true that for people who've been married for a long time, uh, one of the reasons you may lose passion for each other is because life gets busy, doesn't it? You have kids to take care of. You have mortgages to pay. You have work uh, work or house projects to accomplish. You have promotions to achieve. You have poker nights to attend, you name it. And when our focus is shifted from our spouse, they eventually feel abandoned and neglected when something else is chosen over them. We lose our first love with Christ usually because we're sleeping with something else. Have you ever seen in TV a spouse coming home early and then they hear some noise in the bedroom and they're wondering, oh, my my husband or wife is in, is in the bedroom, and they go in, and they open the door, and then they see their unfaithful spouse underneath the sheet with another, with another lover or a stranger, and then all of a sudden, the, the unfaithful spouse 
discovered, he jumps and he says, Ah, honey, I can explain. It's not what it looks like. What does it look like? <laughs> right? It's not what it looks like. I can explain. It's not what it looks like. It doesn't work, by the way. And certainly we do this with Jesus too. Jesus, ah, uh, I can explain. It's not what it looks like. You see, life gets busy. You understand. There's no time for intimacy between you and me. Jesus, my life is busy. You understand. My Sundays are so hectic. I don't have time to spend the morning preparing my heart for worship. I have kids to feed. And I have to decide what kind of clothes I'm going to wear. And I have to plan for lunch after church. I have a life. I can explain. The reality is that we don't need to drag ourselves to shop online for things that we want. We don't need to drag ourselves for new shoes or new tools or, new, or watch YouTube videos for hours and hours to entertain us because we're very, very proficient by nature. But spending time with Jesus, we can explain, can't we? In 1993, there was this great philosopher and songwriter by the name of Meatloaf who, who wrote a song called I would do anything for love. And it's a love song, which the chorus goes like this. I won't sing it for you today because you don't want to hear that. But the chorus goes like this. And I would do anything for love. Oh, I would do anything for love. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. No, I won't do that. See, why do we compromise and lose our love for Christ? Because we make the song our heart anthem. Jesus, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do tithes because my retirement funds are more important. Jesus, I'll do anything for love, but don't touch my free time that belongs to my family. Jesus, I'll do anything for love, but don't ask me to give you my heart that belongs to myself. Jesus, I'll do anything for love. Oh, anything for love, but I won't talk about you at work I'll just whisper about you at church. Jesus, I'll do anything for love, but I won't stop running towards online shopping, TV, or whatever else to find ultimate rest. Jesus, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. Fill in the blank. What is church? What is your that? What do you choose to love more than Christ? It's possible, very possible, to profess that your love for God but not be in love with God. Church, this is a major pitfall of many churches today. It's possible to prof- profess love for God saying, look at our theology, look at our, all our ministry events and the ministry teams, look at all that we do very possible to profess love for God and not be in love with God. So friends, have you lost your first love? And are you wondering what you must do to get it back? I mean, isn't it the case that when we hurt someone and we violate, violate their trust, the first thing that we would say is, what can I do? What, what can I do to make it up? What can I do to love you again, to show you that I love you? If you're asking that question because you've, like me, you've lost your first love, you're probably asking the same question the Ephesians asked themselves. 
Jesus, what do I have to do to regain my love for you? What can I do to show you that I actually love you? And Jesus says, answers, and he says this, get ready, this is my translation, by the way, it's not the ESV, get ready, set, remember. Get ready, set, remember. And then repent, and then redo. See, the doing comes last, and the order here matters. Remember, repent, and redo. So how do we get our love back? If you look at verse 5, I'm new at using these slides, sorry. If you look at verse 5, it says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. See, the act of remembering is crucial for the people of God because remembering is an act that signifies that God does all the work. Jesus is saying to his church, remember how loved you are. Remember how loving I am. Remember how quickly you were maturing in your faith when your heart was mine. Remember how you used to sing songs and you could never get enough of praise songs. You could never get enough of Chris Tomlin and Hillsong or whoever you listen to. You could never get enough. Why? Because you were so in love. Remember how sweet prayer was when you really believed that I was listening and I was there. Remember your first love. Remember. Sadly, today... Remembering about God's love and how we used to be young, passionate Christians in our faith is too often brushed off as being sentimental. Or maybe we think it's emotional manipulation, so we don't need that. But in looking, um, but friends, remembering is important because remembering is the first step towards repentance. And this is what I mean. As of today, Right now, I've been married for six months and 24 hours. I know it's nothing to brag about, but six months and 24 hours. Um, And once in a while, I'll look over at our wedding pictures and remember one of the most hectic days of my life, but also uh, probably broke the record for maintaining a smile for a whole day. Um, But in looking through these pictures, I remember the nostalgia and the passion and the love and the happiness that came with the idea that, oh my gosh, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with my best friend. But also, when I'm remembering, I'm I'm reminded that in six months, I was not as faithful as I promised her to be. I was not as selfless as I vowed to her to be. I was not as loving as I could have or should have been. And the list, and I'm told that the longer you're married, the list goes on and on and on. So that's something to look forward to. But remembering, though is not enough, remembering Christ as our first love leads us to the harsh reality of the high place we have fallen. And naturally, it's a natural guide through the Spirit to lead us into repentance. So remembering is not enough, and it's not but it's the gateway to repentance. And through repentance, it kindles our love for Jesus and leads us to do the good works we did at first. 
There's a story in the Bible in Luke chapter 7 that captures this picture perfectly. Jesus had been invited to eat dinner with a very, very important teacher of the town, a Pharisee named Simon. And as they're eating dinner, all of a sudden, they're rudely interrupted by this woman. And this woman happened to be a prostitute of the city. And she comes before Jesus' feet, and the first thing she does is she starts crying. And she starts crying and weeping, and her tears fall on Jesus' feet. And she washes his feet, and she pours oil, and she pours perfume, and she just stops crying and, and, and at his feet. She's performing an ultimate act of love, of surrendering to Jesus. And the question is, Why? Why is this woman able to love Jesus with all her heart, all her soul, and all her mind in this instance? Jesus gives us the answer. Still learning. Okay, that didn't work. But Jesus gives us the answer in Luke chapter 7, verse 47. He says, But he who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven little loves little. Little. Jesus wasn't just talking about loving other people per, per se, but he was talking about himself. He who is forgiven little loves me little. Jesus is saying this, that this woman is able to love him because she remembers her sins. She, remembers, she also remembers that her sins are never too egregious and never out of reach of God's love. And she comes before Jesus saying, you love me. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. We'll love Jesus little if we remember that we've been forgiven little. Church, how do you rekindle your love for God? When you remember Christ, that he loved you when you did not love him. That he sought you when you ran away from him. The question of See, the question of what can I do to make Jesus love me changes to a realization that there's nothing I can do to make him love me any less. His love is on max. And as a result, our life becomes rather a celebration of his love for us. See, the Christians and the church's power is founded on repentance, which leads to love, which is why Jesus gives a warning to the Ephesian church that unless they repent and celebrate God's love for them, their witnessing power will be taken away. You have nothing to share. You don't have a love story to tell. You don't have a lover to offer. The church stands and perseveres on her knees in repentance. See, a church does not survive on doctrine, nor multiple ministries, nor celebrity pastors, nor great preachers. It survives on repentance and remembering constantly the love of Christ. In verse 7, Jesus gives a final exhortation to the church by saying that, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And a lot of people will read this and say, I'm going to conquer. I'm going to conquer through my works. I'm going to show the world my love for Jesus. But the reality is that Jesus is referring to something very specific here. Because you see, back in ancient times, someone who conquers was given first before the reward, they were given access to approach the throne of the king or the emperor to receive the reward. So someone who conquers is given access to come before the king. 
and approach the throne of God. So the question is, how is the church to conquer in her repentance and love and be victorious in her faith and approach the throne of God to receive everlasting life and to receive any form of hope? Jesus here is making a reference to the Garden of Eden. If you're not familiar, the Garden of Eden was a place, a perfect place that God made in the beginning of time where Adam and Eve, the first human beings on earth, they sinned and they were cast out of the garden and from God's presence and a flaming sword and an angelic guard was placed in the front of the garden to keep anything unholy from coming in. And the only way anybody would be able to conquer that will be to come before the flaming sword and the angelic guard and offer a perfect life of sacrifice for them to be for the relationship to be restored with God. In other words, you need to be VIP or have the highest clearance level to come in the presence of God and take your reward. As I was preparing the sermon this past week, I was reminded of how Pastor Ryan will soon have a second child. I know it's something weird to think about when you're preparing a sermon, but um, it just came to my mind. Ryan, you're always on my mind. Um, <laughs> and the th- other thing that I thought was, man, I really enjoy our lunches together. I wonder if we'll be able to keep those up. And the answer is probably not, because Ryan will be so, so busy. And it's, the same goes for all of us here. If you want to get to Ryan, you'll probably have to schedule an appointment, and um, your appointment will always be second to his second child. But do you know whose access will not be altered? Do you know who can get to Ryan without making an appointment, without looking at the schedule, without planning ahead? Jojo, his first son. (laughs) A baby has higher access than all of us here. Because no matter what time of the day or how hectic things get, Jojo will always be able to approach and have complete access to receive his father's love. Likewise, church, when we look to Jesus in faith and when we remember his love and when we repent of our sins, what happens is that we are granted access To a heavenly father, not as strangers, but as sons and daughters. And we have access to him only because Jesus is the one who conquered the cross. And he grants to us his status as children. So church, how do we conquer? We conquer through the one who conquered. What Jesus is reminding the Ephesian church and also Cornerstone is that we conquer through the one who conquered. Just like Adam and Eve could not get back into the Garden of Eden and into relationship with God through their own means, church, we cannot be in right standing with God through any events that we hold or any, uh, any ministries that we pull off or how successful they are, but we only enter into God's presence and into his blessing through Jesus Christ, the one who conquered. Because through Jesus... In faith, through the conquering one, we're united by faith. We are married to him. We become his bride. And as he comes under the sword, as he offers his perfect life of obedience in front of the flaming sword and the angelic being, he comes under the sword of God's judgment. And through him, we die. And through him, we live again. We conquer and we have full, uninhibited access to our Father. This is good news. Because this means that you, 
may feel distant from God, but in faith, you're as close as you'll ever be. You may feel unworthy of God's love because of something you did, something in your past or something maybe this week. But in faith, you're priceless. You see, it doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what you say. In faith, you're priceless. You may feel defeated. You may feel weak because the doctor just gave you a diagnosis that you never saw coming. But in Christ, in faith, you're victorious. Death is just a door to get you reunited with your first love. So church, how do we regain our love for Christ when we remember his great love for us? And as we remember his great love, we are able to approach God's throne in boldness and confidence because we're his child and remember Christ, the one who conquered. And through him, we repent of things that got in the way of our first love without giving excuses. And as we remember also that we're forgiven, we redo the works of love that our Father prepared before him to do. So church, may you never forget, may you never forget God's love. May you go out And may your hearts have on repeat, always, remember, repent, and redo. Let's pray.